Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the Liberty Podcast. This is episode number nine. We're almost at 10, but number nine today. Mike here with JD. How are we doing today, JD? It's a beautiful day for a beautiful podcast here, Mike, and that's what we're bringing. So, that's right. Uh, yeah, I'm excited about this one today. Um, so today, we're actually going to be talking about sort of different real estate investment options and why it might work for you. And then we're sort of going to jump in and kind of talk about if we have experiences in them, um, how they are, and then sort of just our opinion on each one and just um, if we like it, if we don't like it, and, and why for both of those. Um, so first off, uh, I'm ready to jump right in unless there's something else you want to preface. Yeah, I think it's going to be key for us to go through all the different financial aspects and what kind of loans you can get, um, what level of experience is needed for each one, and, and really just emphasize that there is a next move for everyone out there. So the goal of this podcast is to help all our listeners figure out their next move and open up some of their real estate brains to some other concepts that are out there. Um, I know we're really niche, but I want to give everyone the full spectrum, Mike. Yeah. I mean, I think what's super interesting about, about today's episode is um, just because you start with one of these concepts doesn't mean that that's the only one you can go with. Um, I feel like a lot of times people just, you can switch around all the time. And just because you started with house hack doesn't mean your next one's going to be a house hack. It can be, you know, something else different. So I think it's going to be interesting to talk about all of these because all of these can apply to everybody pretty much. Yeah, totally. And I think it's cool that we're recording today's episode, me inside of a house hack and you from an Airbnb out in the Outer Banks. So uh, we are living this episode. That's right. We are. Alrighty. First off, um, let's, let's, since you mentioned house hack, let's, let's start with that one. Yeah. Great so, one to start with. <laughs> so what are the, what are the down payments like for a house hack? Yeah. So the reason house hack is so great for especially newer and first time investors is you can get in for 3% down, um, anywhere 3% to 5%. I've done them both ways. And that leverage is phenomenal for getting started. Cause a lot of times you're getting started, you don't have a whole lot of cash. Uh, it's just going to be a great way to, to get an intro. And because you're living there, um, you were used to paying rent. It's kind of a good way to, to ease in and you're not kind of stuck with the entire mortgage yourself for finding tenants, but rather you're in there too. Yeah. And not only makes your, your down payment and just barrier entry so much lower, but like you said, it gets rid of completely your, your rent, um, your utility bill. Um, if you do it right, you can even make some money like possible from your tenants. Um, your other roommates or what have you. Um, it's just a super easy way to get in um, and, and make a little bit of money maybe on top and live for free. Yeah, totally. Um, and it's cool because when you buy a house hack, you're buying something that you intend on living in, which means you're cool with the area. It's somewhere you're cool with living with, which means your fellow tenants, whether they're your friends or even if they're randos, the randos are probably going to end up being somewhat like you because they find the same area, area desirable and the same living scenario desirable. So it's a cool way to make some extra friends on top of some extra cash. Yeah, totally. Um, for house hack, what are your thoughts on furniture? Do you typically, I know, I think before you had mentioned some other podcasts that you didn't do furniture. Um, is there a reason for that? Or do you suggest that people do get furniture when they rent it or, or don't do that? Or, or why is that? So it's person specific and really it comes down to kind of where you're at when you close. So for my first one, what I did was furnish all the common areas because it was my house and I didn't expect people moving in to kind of bring the dining table, the couches, that kind of stuff. Obviously did my own bedroom, um, but otherwise I let people furnish their own rooms very much like a regular long-term rental. Now where it got different was I was Airbnb out an extra room and that one I furnished. 
Um, knowing that a friend was going to move in, I basically just rented it furnished. And since then, since I obviously operate in the short-term rental niche, I know I'm going to be furnishing these houses anyway. I try to furnish my house hacks from the start. That way, when there's tenants moving in and out, playing musical tenant chairs, uh, it's very easy to just have people pop in, pop out, and not worry about big move day because it's more so big show up day. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Um, one question I did have for you is, is how is your screening process differently um, when it's, uh, you know, like a, a house hack and people are moving in with you versus like a long-term rental if you were to do that? That's a great question. And it really comes down to your personal standards. For me, um, I vet any person I don't know the same way I would a tenant for a long-term rental. I check their credit. I make sure that they have clean backgrounds. I make sure they send me pay stubs. So credit check, two pay stubs, um, that's big um, regardless. And then sometimes for friends, I'll let them kind of slide through. But depending on the friend, it's really easy even with your friends to do that same thing. Be like, hey, bro, uh, I, I need your pay stubs. Um, like just a quick little email kind of joking around about it. Hey, dude, if you really want to move in, I'm going to need to see some pay stubs and a, a screenshot of your credit score. And most people laugh and send you the screenshot and tell you to to kick rocks and they're they're moving in. So um, you can you can play it both ways. Uh, you should definitely be keeping track of that stuff regardless, because God forbid you end up in a situation where someone's not paying you. Uh, it's just not fun. Oh yeah, I, I, it can definitely turn into a nightmare very quickly, especially if it's a friend, like a, a friend you've had for a very long time, um, when they're not paying, and you know it's it's not very easy to just kick out a friend that you've known for for so long. I'm sure. It is easy to kick them out if you are bigger than them, though. You kind of just, you know, pick them up, walk them out the door, drop them, close it. Yeah, I mean, that. I don't advise that thing. I, I don't advise it. Find uh, find good tenants. You check their credit, you're never going to have to uh, do any scuffles. <laughs> that totally helps. Um, one last question for you is, what sort of contracts do you, um, if any, do you write for... Um, I guess you don't really need any for the Airbnb guests because they just look at your Airbnb. But if you have sort of like friends, um, what sort of like lease agreements do you make them, if any? Yeah, so I'll have even my friends fill out just uh, a pretty basic rental agreement um, stating the the address. If they're renting a room, I, I make sure to specify specifically what room it is in the house and, and specify that all the common areas are shared. Um, and that's what their rent is going towards. I specify whether the utilities are included or not. Um, and how that might be calculated. So anything that that might come up that's a gray area, you just want to specify it in the lease so that you're not going back and, and just have an open discussion about it. Um, I'll go through the lease with a lot of my tenants like upon like before they move in. Um, we'll, we'll read through it together and then we'll go from there. Usually it's not that difficult. If a lot of times I still do first last security. Sometimes with my friends, I just do first and security um, or just even first if, if you're straight up homie. Um, and I know you're going to be around for a while. So uh, I might be too nice, uh, but that's how I usually play it. It's a full-fledged lease agreement. Yeah, I mean, that's a great way to do it. Protect yourself, protect them, and just make everybody, you know, kind of understand the, the roles that are going on. Um, and then do they typically- I've got a pretty funny story for you, Mike. Okay. So one of my first tenants, actually, um, it was probably like five days into moving. He is a, a a big stoner. And I didn't, I didn't care. He did great credit, great job, like paid on time every month, but it was about five days in and the house was brand new. So there, there was like an issue with something in the house, like some pipe had to be fixed and the contractor came, fixed it, whatever. 
my friend starts calling me, um, random guy I met on Facebook five days in. And he's like, dude, the contractor has been stealing my stuff. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, there's no possible way. And he's like, I need you to like, get my stuff back or blah, 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 breach of the lease starts talking litigation. I'm like, this is crazy. So I'm stressing already first, first week of, of my first tenants. And, uh, so I, I, send an email to the contractor trying not to like point the finger or blame him and just be like, Hey, did you like move something? Um, I think there's just like a misunderstanding here. Maybe something got moved around, whatever. Long story short, my friend ended up losing like $500 worth of weed and thinks the contractor stole his weed, wow. which not going to lie. That could have been a very possible scenario. So yeah. a couple of days go on. The guy is livid. Um, turns out, like a squirrel hiding acorns before winter his plan was knowing that contractors were coming in he was really high when he did this he decided he was going to hide it somewhere that the contractor would never find it he was high when he did this so he forgot where he hid it and that he even did this finds it randomly like two weeks later and ends up writing like a full-fledged letter to both me and the contractor apologizing wow um, because like a squirrel finding his nut after the winter he ended up discovering where he put that stuff that's wild yeah i guess that's all part of the game though um <laughs> things like that do happen and, I guess. totally and the cool thing was after that like there was a couple other like little things he was uh being trying to be a stickler about with the lease or whatever that first week but after that incident there were no more issues ever because he felt like such a, a jerk after that incident that right he just had that. no complaints thereafter. And I didn't have any issues with anyone else after that. So um, out of probably dozens and dozens of tenants at this point, not many issues. That was like the only one and it was a funny one. That's, that's, that's honestly funny. That's, that's pretty solid though. Um, pretty solid. Um, all right. Okay. So let's, let's talk about a little bit about the disadvantages of, of house hacking. Um, for me, I would say a big disadvantage, if you really care that much, is just living with others. You don't necessarily have um, always space to yourself. It's more of like a shared space. What's, what's sort of your take on that? Yeah, totally. So obviously there's ways you can play multifamily house hacks and have your own space, but you have to be really particular when you're hunting for that type of thing. Because in, in the ideal scenario, you probably find a fourplex, right? The maximum leverage, maximum units, and you somehow find a fourplex that has one unit that's a one bedroom just for you um and then you have the other three units that are all tenants they're super heavy rents and they're covering everything and then some because these magical unicorn four bedroom or four unit structures don't exist everywhere sometimes the best cash flowing units are places that are shared maybe a four or five bedroom house that you can rent out the extra rooms and if you're super serious about cash flow in your first investment, you're going to take the worst room, probably spend a lot of time in the common area because you want to take the cheapest room and give the rest out so you can make the most cash flow. If you're doing this, you're going to share the spaces and that that can be a drawback. Now you need to remember, it's not that much of a drawback, but more of a sacrifice because you have the option to do these, these other units. You have the option to go into multifamilies that might not cash flow as much. And you just need to make the decision uh, do I want cash or do I want comfortability and just do whatever you're comfortable with? Yeah. I mean, that, that sounds just about pretty accurate. Um, I mean, I would say for younger people, it's not nearly as hard to sort of live with others. Um, but when, once you get older and especially if you have kids, it definitely makes it a little more difficult to, to sort of have these shared spaces. But, but like you said, there is always an option to just look for a, a duplex, triplex, quadplex. 
and then maybe it does just take a little bit more time to, to find one of these that, that makes sense with numbers and everything, but it's definitely doable to find in, in any market, I'd say. Yeah, totally. And I think that at the everyone's different. I, I wouldn't recommend trying to house hack a single family home as a family, unless you have some sort of like extra suite or something crazy. But um, a lot of us making our first moves and hopefully the listeners on this podcast are, are a bit younger and ready to dive in um, and not afraid to share space because it's such a powerful start. My first house hack, I was bringing in $400 a month in cash flow and living in the master suite for free. A drastic change from paying rent anywhere else. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that totally sets you up for the next one and then the next one, next one after that. Um, is there any other like disadvantages you could think of with, with a house hack? No, I, I honestly think it's the best way to get started um, by a mile. I think it's it's super beginner friendly. Um, you have a lot of safety baked into everything that you're doing. Um, going from having to pay rent to now you're covering some of your own mortgage, it's not that big of a difference. And if you miss a tenant or two in the extra rooms or extra units, it's not the end of the world. Um, you still have money coming in. So Totally, yeah. Um, and then one big thing is you can do it every year, you know, once every single year, um, just help you get the next one, you know, super easy down payment, just make it easy. You have to, if you want to be rich fast and build wealth fast, you need to house hack every year or more. Interesting thing about house hacking is you can do it more often than once a year. If you're upgrading your place in terms, a lot of times lenders are just going to look at the price difference. Um, and a lot of times with the price difference, you're either switching neighborhoods I bought houses down the street from my uh, original primaries because there was an extra bedroom, an extra bathroom, uh, much bigger living area, whatever it is. If you can justify the lender why you need that new space and why it works better for you, then you're going to be able to make that move. A lot of times going down the street's not going to work. But if you just move over neighborhoods, like it's let's say you switched in Philly from Point Breeze, pretty good neighborhood, I'd say B neighborhood to Fishtown, like an A-minus neighborhood, your your lender's not going to have a problem with that. You could do it maybe six months later, no problem. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great tip. Um, I think pretty much anybody can utilize that and, and, and make it, you know, just speed up your process that much faster of just getting to that live-free lifestyle, really. Totally. And there's a lot of people who travel a lot and move around a lot. Like, if you get relocated for work, you should already have a primary where you live so you can rent it out when you leave and you should begin a primary in the new spot that you go. Oh, totally. Yeah. It just, it wouldn't make any sense to just not do that, honestly. Yeah. It's, it's the perfect first step and continuing move that you can play. Yeah. All right. Um, let's jump into home style renovation. Um, do you have any questions? Do you want to take this one or do you want me to take this one? Um, let me, let me do some, uh, let me do some of the, the, how about this? You do the benefits and I'll talk about the disadvantages. Okay, that sounds good. Okay. Start us off with some benefits of home style renovation. Yeah, so this is this is for the people out there who want to get a little more more handy and hands-on. I'm not the type of person who has ever really swung a hammer or fixed anything. Um, and I knew that. My dad always made fun of me for that and said, You're gonna need to learn this stuff someday, son. And I said, No, I'm not. I'm going to pay people to do it. And that's what I've done. But for those people who don't like paying people to do these simpler things and want to get some more experience, home style renovations are a great option. And what that is for you guys out there who aren't familiar with a home style renovation loan, 
it's essentially a primary home loan where you get to roll in all the renovations into the mortgage. So I had a friend who did this, bought a house for around 70,000. The renovations were going to be about 40,000. So that puts us at 110,000 um, mortgage, right? You got to do 3% on that, um, which is super awesome to leverage all of the renovations and the, the home purchase. The house ends up being worth 150 after it's done. So you, you put down uh, about three, $4,000, you end up with a house that's worth 150. It's a really good way to get in for low cash and get some experience with doing the renovation. And the best part is the bank wants you to work with a contractor. So you have to have a licensed contractor do the scope of work, um, prepared to go do all this stuff. And a lot of contractors are going to let you do whatever parts of the work that you want. Um, you, you make this agreement with them outside of what's going on with the bank and you can go from there. Uh, as long as you're taking good care of the house, you're going to gain a lot of good experience. And it's kind of a practice for a burr, um, just really a big mix of house hack and a burr. So you get some pretty cool profit potential. Yeah, I'm sure you can get a ton of just really knowledgeable and just really good experience just by going through this process, which will be able to set you up for maybe another strategy later of doing a, a flip on yourself. Um, or, you know, doing even ground up construction. Um, this will give you some experience that'll, that'll help you bridge into that ground up construction, which you can start doing later. Um, yeah. And a lot of times when you go to do the burn method, uh, lenders and hard money lenders will not give you the loan unless you've done one already. So everyone's first question is how, how can I do that? It's like the chicken before the egg thing. I need to do a burr, um, but I need experience first. How can I get experience if I haven't, if I'm not allowed to do a burr? So this is a really good way to get that experience with your first play um, using the home style renovation loan. So you get some practice with renovation, you get get the check on the box checked, and now you can move into some burr strategy and, and get some hard money to move really fast after you're done with this first one. Oh, totally. And what's really nice about, about this sort of strategy is um, you do have options after you finish it because you don't necessarily have to sell right away. You can also rent it, you can you know Airbnb it, you can house hack you can kind of do whatever you want i assume right you just kind of uh, refinance and then just choose what you want to do after that yeah i mean you don't even need to refinance is the cool part oh okay that's it yeah i mean you totally could it would be smart like that situation i just gave um the dude put like i said uh it would be like 3600 to 4000 down um but house you put it 110 all in the house is now worth 150 so at an 80% refinance loan to value, you now have a new loan for 120. Um, your old loan was 110, so you're really getting cash out. Uh, your old loan was like 106. So you're getting $14,000 back and you still have the house. You only put 4,000 in, so you really made $10,000 by doing that work. And now you have $10,000 to go move into your next investment. You can go do that all over again um, or play it however you want. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a great strategy for somebody um, also really just starting. Um, so some disadvantages I have here are um, it could take longer than expected as, as pretty much as anything in real estate. I think the rule of thumb is like it's going to take 20% longer and it's also going to cost 20% more than you initially anticipate that the whole project is going to be. Um, there could be more costs than, than associated that you think. Um, um, question to you, would the bank give you um, more money if, if you realize you need more money or are they kind of a stickler for that or how does that sort of work? No, most banks when they're doing renovation style loans are not going to give you any more money. So you kind of need to inflate the budget a little bit when you go in. 
because chances are you're going to need a little more money than you thought, like you said. So let's say you bump the numbers up 10, 20%, you're probably going to end up using that entire inflated budget. Uh, and then you're in a good spot because if you end up needing 10 to 20% more than you didn't budget for, the bank's not going to allow that. And that's going to have to be out of pocket to finish. And that's kind of how people get caught up a lot of times whenever you see, because I always wonder when I'm going down the street or driving by and I see houses half finished, or if I'm searching on Zillow and the house is half finished, that's usually what happens is people get caught in the middle. They run out of money and they don't have the cash to finish. So they have to sell halfway, which is not where you want to be stuck. Yeah, definitely not ideal to be in that sort of situation. Um, that's a good tip, though, to, to sort of inflate your numbers a little bit, just because you know that things are, are probably going to take a little longer. Um, so you have to pay contractors more, and they're probably going to cost a little bit more than you expect, too, because there's also, like, unforeseen things that um, you need to replace or, or do that you don't initially expect. Totally. And the nice thing with the Homestyle Renovation Loan is one of the requirements is it has to be livable already. So that really protects you as a first-time buyer with, with not that much experience. Uh, let's say you do run out of budget money. You finish two-thirds of the house. It was already livable. You bought it at, like my friend did, say, $70,000. let us say he that $40,000 got it so that it was like two-thirds of the way done. It's still going to be worth a lot more at that point than what you paid for it. Maybe it's not worth the full $150 that you were going for. Maybe now it's, it's $125 because you didn't finish everything that's still better than the 110 that you have in it. And you're still in a really good spot because you can still live there. You can still rent it out. It's just not as fixed up as you would like. So it's, it's a great way to kind of protect yourself going into one of your first deals. Totally. Yeah. Um, do you think you would see yourself doing something like this? A homestyle renovation? Uh, I should think about it more often, to be honest with you. I wish I had started off with one um, earlier on and, I just really got lucky with the niche that I found, but I, if I was in a different scenario, I, I would go back into one. I, I think they're a really good play and a safe play to get good experience. Totally. Yeah. I mean, one, one disadvantage of it, obviously, is it's probably going to stuck up a lot more of your time than, than you'd expect. Um, but if, if you had the time and, and, you know, a lot of people just like to sort of do some of that stuff. A lot of people like to work in their houses. Um, so if that's something that, you know, you're into, that's, you know, a good strategy to use. Yeah, totally. And a lot of people when they're starting have a lot more time than they do cash. So it's a really good way to to leverage that imbalance that you have and really tip the scales to some to a way that's a little more favorable for you. Um, at this point, I don't think I would do it just because a lot of times there's it be, with the house having to be livable, the amount of renovation that you're doing is is more so lipstick. And a lot of times the deals that I want to work on are, are much larger and require a much heavier renovation budget and a much heavier boost ARV if I'm going to be working on it. So for me, I'm probably out of that game, but for people just starting out, I highly recommend. Yeah, super good. Super good. All right, let's get into our favorite category. I'm going to say, you already know what it is, short-term rental. <laughs> okay. Why do we love short-term rental? Um, some reasons I love short-term rental is higher income, no eviction, tenants pay on time always, um, and you can still use the property from time to time um, without you know, having it just locked up with a, with a long-term tenant in there. Um, so any other things that you really love about short-term rental? Oh, Mike, I could go on and on and on, but you really hit it with the, the higher income. Um, what's really important to remember with a short-term rental versus any other style is, Let's say you're making 
$200 a month on a long-term rental because you were bringing in 2000 and all of your financing and everything is 1800. So you're making 200. Even if a short-term rental is only one and a half times the revenue, um, net revenue, which is pretty conservative. So now you're getting 3000, your payment is 1800, you're getting 1200. So really you're getting 1200 from one and 200 from the other, which you would think would be one and a half times the cash flow, but it's really six times the cash flow. So you would need five similar houses at that same $200 cash flow um, just to match the one short-term rental. And that's why short-term rentals are such a favorable play because it helps you scale so much more when you're able to stack that much more cash with just one house. Uh, I talk about this all the time. If, if you could retire, people are always talking about how many doors they have. Everyone's goal is a hundred doors, making a hundred dollars each. Like, dude, just get 10 houses and make a thousand dollars each because that's right. 10 times less management that you have to do. And the houses are all probably way cooler. Oh, you know, they are. Um, one big thing we always look for in just short-term rental properties is sort of what we call that Instagrammable feel. Um, it's got to be super sick. You, you want to walk into a house, take tons of pictures and post them on your Instagram flexing. You just got to this Airbnb and spent a ton of money and, and how sick your, your week vacation was in the Poconos or in, you know, really anywhere. Um, you want to be able to show that off. And for people to even book your Airbnb, it, it's got to be pretty cool for them to even want to book in the first place. Yeah, Airbnb is a super com competitive space. Um, I was doing some searches on a bunch of different cities recently, and even in just like small mile radiuses, you're seeing 1,000, 2,000 listings just in a small little sector. So the market's definitely becoming more saturated as Airbnb heats up. So you want to make sure you're going to be one of those top offerings so that your occupancy is not an issue. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, let's talk about some, some disadvantages to short-term running. Um, a, a big one I have here is just, it's, it's much more management involved, um, with the tenants and the cleaning and the communication and all that than a typical long-term, um, tenant would be. Can you, can you talk a little bit on that? Yeah, totally. So that's a kind of a double, double-edged sword. In one case, yeah, the, the management is much more intensive than a lot of people think. Having just even five properties under management is going to be a full-time job for you. It's not, you can side hustle maybe one or two, but after that, it becomes so hectic and it's a 24-7 thing with guest stays being so much shorter. Those issues to them are super urgent. It, with long-term tenant, if something's not fixed, the light bulb's out, whatever, it's not a huge deal. But with a short-term tenant, um, if a sink is not working or there's an issue with the toilet, if they're only there for two days and it's, it's messed up for a day and a half, you just ruin 75% of their stay. Whereas if the toilet's not working for one day on a one-year lease, the tenant won't even remember that or care. You'll be like, I'll get to it. I'll, my contractor can get to it when he can get to it. So the scheduling of maintenance is much more urgent. There's just so many more pain points in short-term rental that it is a little bit extra work. But now the double-edged short is when you're just getting started to do this, this kind of management yourself when you have one or two units is such a powerful way to increase your cash flow. Uh, a lot of management companies will charge 20-ish percent of gross revenue, which it's a lot, but it's super worth it to have someone managing your place. The thing is, when you're getting started, you probably want to do the first one or two yourself so that you can get a feel for what it is, save up the extra cash, have that cash flow to catapult into more units. But Remember, we all get started with real estate to 
create passive income and live free and go do what we want with our time, not to become property management companies. So after you get a couple and you're used to it and you get to the point where you can't handle it, that's when it's probably good to hand off to managers and you now have the experience to kind of vet them and make sure they know what they're doing when they take over your property. Yeah, totally. Um, it definitely can get a lot of work, way more than you expect very quickly, especially when you're scaling as fast as you can with short-term rental and you're just getting you know door after door after door. Um, it definitely turns into a full-time job, like you said. Um, for a little bit of perspective, what is typically the um, management for, for like a long-term rental um, company? What, what do they typically charge in management fees? Yeah, so you'll see in most markets, it'll be somewhere between 8 and 12%. So the short-term fee is about double in the percentage. Um, but I would definitely argue that it's about 5 to 10 times the amount of work that you're doing. Um, dealing just with guest messages at any time of day are intense, but then having to deal with maintenance issues, being urgent, um, making sure that the cleaning is is set up. And if you have to end up running over and cleaning a unit before a check-in, the check-in is going to happen and you're not going to want to lose that revenue. So there's just a lot more on-call features between the 24-7 nature of the messaging and then the 24-7 nature of the maintenance and then possible mishaps with cleaning. So there's just a lot going on there as well as the pricing. So pricing is a very interesting facet of short-term rental management that can make or break you. So if you don't have time to spend on pricing and you just say, okay, I'm just going to rent my place for $100 a night every night, whatever, if it gets booked, it gets booked. You're doing yourself such a huge disservice. Whereas if you get really good at it or put a lot of time into it or have someone from a management company doing it for you, you might be able to make 30, 40, 50% more revenue just by knowing what you're doing with the pricing, which makes every penny of what the management fee is worth it because it's better to get 80% uh, of a place that's doing 50% more than it is to be doing it yourself, doing all that work and getting paid less. So it's it all comes back to saving your time and making more money. Oh, for sure. I mean, in my opinion, a management company just makes way more sense with a short-term rental because there's certain things that you're, you as like a single owner um, aren't really going to pick up on. Um, like you said, with pricing, like let's say there's sports games or concerts or this or that coming into town. And if you're not knowledgeable about these things, you're going to lose a ton of money that you could have made on the reservation had you known of these things, which uh, typically a, a management company is going to know of because they have way more properties. Um, they're going to know about these events coming into town and they're going to raise rates because of that. And they're still going to get booked. And they're going to make their owners much more money than, than they would um, had they not had uh, professional management. And that pretty much makes up for that 20% right there, honestly, alone. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's similar in the long-term space, but I would say not as crucial because the market rent is market rent. If your unit's supposed to rent for 2000 the only difference that it's going to make by you self-managing is as long as you're getting the pictures right. It's just a matter of how often you can show it and get it rented. Do you want to deal with the time and headache of leasing it out? After that, it's pretty easy. The maintenance is is not that difficult. Everything from there shouldn't be too too tough. Um, so it's not a huge deal. But you're also not saving a lot doing long-term management yourself either. Um, so it makes more sense to have management do it in that aspect as well because you're not paying them a, a ton uh, with that smaller fee. Right, right. Um Two more things I have. Um, you have more taxes typically with short-term rentals, um, but who really cares because you're making more money, in my opinion. Um, you have 
possibility of yeah, one. and a lot of platforms take that out already. So Airbnb automatically takes that and remits it. So whatever you're pricing at, you don't really have to worry about that. And other platforms, you do have to collect that yourself and save it and pay it. But a lot of times, Airbnb will be the highest percentage of your bookings. Um, there are certain markets where it won't be, uh, and then in that case, you're probably operating at a rate and already adjusted counting on those taxes being taken out. So that's a pretty good spot. Mike, why don't you talk about the regulation and kind of how that can impact short-term rentals? Yeah, so totally. So, I mean, regulations alone can completely change, um, like in extreme cases, can even make a deal that used to be a deal, no longer a deal anymore. Um, there are instances where um, just sort of different townships and, and counties just straight out outlaw short-term rentals and make you not able to do um, short-term rentals at all. Um, we see this a lot in the Poconos, and then there's there's some talks about this happening in Philly a little bit. Um, but each it seems like each different destination spot has their own sort of way of of doing these regulations. Um, like for instance, in the Poconos, some of the the HOAs and counties um, should outlaw, but some make it so you're allowed to do it, but only for 15 days or more. Some make it only 30 days or more. Some make it you can do it. At, however much you want, but you have to pay a fee for each day. Um, typically, a lot of times you have to have um, somebody from the county um, come out and check out your place and make sure it's, it's good for people to, to stay there and make sure it's, you know, everything is, is in order. Um, just like basically a whole another inspection. Um, and then in Philly, um, what they're trying to impose is um, unless you're zoned properly or you can only do one per person basically, um, for short-term rentals, so that completely wipes out a, a ton of Airbnbs just in Philly alone. And pretty much all markets are, are starting to impose some sort of restrictions on, on short-term rentals. Yeah, totally. And you hit a lot of points. Every restriction and regulation is going to be different in every different market. So with that, before you purchase anything, you just want to make sure you know the rules going into it. And that's part of a purchase contract is deeds, restrictions, and zoning. Um, you have the right to to check those things out and back out of a contract during the due diligence period if you you find out something that you weren't previously aware of. I would recommend uh, a lot of times to figure that out before you purchase something and put an offer in. And, hey, is this legal? Is my plan going to work? Um, otherwise, you're just wasting everyone's time. Now, if you're already seeing that a place is legal and they've already made restrictions, you're in a good spot because chances are maybe they get tweaked a little bit, but it's more likely than not that they're going to stay the same um, as opposed to just be totally flip-flopped in 180. Whereas if a place doesn't have any regulations yet, that's where it gets a little difficult and hairy because they could put them in, they could totally reroute your plan. Um, a lot of times places that are going to make these big moves have bills and drafts of these rules put out a year, year and a half before they even happen. So you can kind of have a pulse on what's going on in that market. And I would say most urban markets will probably trend to be doing the same things. And most vacation markets will probably adopt similar rules to whatever the, the nearest vacation market to them is, or if there are any subsections of that market that have rules already. So you just want to keep, keep that in mind, um, but don't be afraid. Uh, use that as kind of a tool for you. Anything that has a little bit of extra work usually has a little extra reward. Do your homework. And get that property and let's get this cash flow. Yep, 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 yep. I love everything you said there. Um, I think we pretty much hit everything to do with STR. Um, yeah, I mean, with anything else that was kind of important for STR, I think I think we, we really hammered down pretty much everything to do with STR. 
Yeah, totally. Um, I think we can move into to a, a new sector here. Why don't we go into multifamilies, Mike? I know these were something that were big on your radar when you were first getting started. So I'd love to ask you a little bit about those. Oh, yeah, we can jump right into multifamily. So um, when we're talking multifamily, typically, um, in, in my head, I, I think um, the one to four units, but you also have the, the bigger ones. Um, but typically, when you're starting out, you're probably going to be going with, with the one to four units just because you can get that FHA first time um, you know, financing. Um, and just make it super easy. And that's, that's one to four units. You can't go any more than that. You're going to need a, a commercial loan. Um, but the biggest thing, um, like we talked about before, you can you can do that house tax strategy where you live in the one unit and rent the other ones out. And then, you know, cover your mortgage, cover all the utilities for all the units, and then even make a bunch of cash flow on top. Plus, you have that opportunity of, of later on um, in your invested career moving out of that first unit and renting that one to just increase cash flow that much more. And you can move right into another multifamily if, if you want, if you want to be, um, if, if that's, that's, that's cup of tea. Um, more units, more money, basically. Um, yeah, totally. And you hit a key point there with the leverage. You can do 3 to 5% down on these multifamilies, um, which is a really cool way to, to get in the game um, and leverage pretty well. Uh, but... If you're going to be buying it as a pure investment, that's where you have to put 25% down at least, um, which is not nearly as fun. That's that's a lot of bread for people just getting started. But once you're you're deeper in the game, that might not be an issue. Um, you might not be as worried about leverage. The cool thing is with single family homes, you can get into them at 15% down, even as um, an investment property. And that's where I think single families kind of take the cake. I think a lot of the, the bigger podcasts and um, gurus talk about multifamily um, mostly because it's a good bang for your buck. You're getting a ton of units. The purchases are going to be higher. The increase in ARVs are going to be higher. For long-term wealth building, they're a great tool, but it's also really saturated with buyers. So the number of people you're going to be competing with on a multifamily is much more difficult uh, than single family. And it really depends on which niche you're playing because a lot of times a single family, you'll be competing with uh, home buyers who get emotionally attached. Now, where I think it's interesting is where you're going to play the short-term rental game. And with short-term rentals, you're not competing necessarily with buyers who are emotionally attached to trying to buy there as much um, as you are in competitive long-term rental spaces. And that just, the leverage is different. If you can find a single family and get good leverage and go into the short-term space, you've found a, a pretty good opportunity um, there. Whereas if you're competing against all investors when you're making an offer, you better hope that Chances are, if you're getting the property, you either beat them, the, beat them to the punch, which is really good, or you are a much stronger candidate, um, or chances are your underwriting was the worst and the deal didn't work for anyone else at that number, but you decided to pay more. And now you might be kind of stuck because you missed something that everyone else didn't. Yeah, totally. Um, have you done any multifamily deals yourself? Yeah, I've, I've bought a uh, duplex. I bought in a portfolio of units. Um seven units at a time. I've, I've done some bigger deals like that. And I really like the multifamily play um, if you can get a good value for the property. So um, an example, let's say single families in the area for a three bedroom are selling for half a million dollars. If you can get a multifamily and both the units are a great size, um, going to rent similar to what the multifamily, uh, to what the single family would, but each unit is 400,000. So you get a duplex for 800,000. I think that's insane value. 
Um, if your rents are even a hundred, 200 off, it's, it's not a big deal. That's not going to make up the difference for the extra hundred thousand you paid for, for your unit. Uh, and that's where multifamilies can have a, a pretty killer value. Oh yeah, for sure. Totally. Um, let's talk about some disadvantages. Um, and I don't really see a, a ton here. Um, some, some notes I have here are, um, you might need management just cause you're dealing with, with multiple people, multiple tenants, um, more repair costs potentially just because there's, there's more units, there's more things that can go wrong. Um, one, one good advantage I can know is because it's multifamily and it's all together, there is only one roof that you need to, to fix if it goes bad. Um, but other than that, it, it, it seems like there's not really too many disadvantages with it. Yeah, and there's some diversification in there too. So let's say you're, you're buying that fixer-upper, that home-style renovation. If you have to do work, on all four units, let's say, you can start by living in one, fixing it up, and then get tenants for the other ones. You can slowly move and work your way around to the other units. In a single family home, if you have to do some repairs and you're, you're not gonna be able to have tenants in it when you're there, you're now getting zero cash flow out of what you expected. Whereas with multifamily, you can work on each unit, slowly get them up to par and increase ARV on all four units and the, the building itself. So it's a really good way to, to spread out the risk, to spread out the risk of vacancy, to kind of map out repairs. And that's just a huge advantage. The other thing to keep in mind for multifamily is when you're going to purchase a loan, I know what you're thinking, JD, I can't afford an $800,000 duplex. You're crazy. I can afford maybe a $300,000 house. Well, keep in mind that when you're purchasing a multifamily unit, even to live in, they're going to count the other units rental income and the market rent there towards your income when qualifying. So maybe you can actually qualify and leverage a little higher and get something a little bigger and more bang for your buck when you're using that, that home buyer loan uh, and end up getting a, a better deal. And that all comes from the fact that you're getting that extra income on the, the extra unit, extra two, extra three. If you're buying a fourplex, they'll count all three of those other units towards your, your qualifying income and you might be able to get something pretty sweet. Wow, yeah, that's a really good tip you have there. Um, yeah, you think you can't afford it, but then you can. So everything works out in the end. Um, that's pretty much all I got for multifamily. Um, is there anything else you had or is that pretty it? That's all I got for multifamily. Uh, let's, let's get into student housing as a play. And this is gonna be, be a little different. So I'll let you talk about some of the benefits and a lot of the, the cool parts of student housing. And then I can get into the disadvantages if you like. Student housing. So some of the benefits I'd say to student housing are that um, I would say it's almost easier to get tenants because you sort of know the niche um, people you're reaching out to. You're reaching out to those, those students. Um, could be first time students, first, first year, second year, third year, fourth year. Everyone's looking to get a, a place. I know sometimes at campuses, they, they make you stay on the campus for the first and second year before you get into like your own place. Um, but I'd say it's, it's almost easier to, to get people um, just because you know the exact niche of people are going towards. Um, another big thing is you can typically have the parents guarantee the rent. So, you know, you're working with students um, and it's not typical always that they are the most responsible, you know, because they're younger people. Um, so having the parents sign off saying they're going to guarantee the rent, even if the, the students aren't paying, is, is a huge just um, safety factor that can be added in there. Yeah, it's, it's like we talked about before with getting tenants. Uh, you want to do your, your credit checks and your income checks, and 
to have the parents on the hook as co-signers is, is going to be really important. So even if the students can kind of be, be bratty or punks and, and think they're going to get away with not paying you, they know mom and dad are on the, on the hook. And that goes the same for damages. Um, if they break anything, they're going to want to not break anything because they know their dad's going to bring out that belt. So uh, repairs are also less of an issue because you have someone to fall back on and go for. Um, the other disadvantage, though, is you're going to have potentially a lot more work and renovation to do. So you're going to have to to plan for that um, with student housing and you're going to be dealing with more people. So you're also like if you're not sending someone to fix that toilet within a day, you're not just dealing with uh, a student, you're dealing with their parents as well. And the last person you want to be on the phone with is an angry parent protecting their their child. You don't want to mess with mama bear. So it's a, it's definitely a different game and you definitely get a premium in student rental markets for dealing with the extra work. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's, that's one benefit there is just some of the extra income you can have with that. Um, but I would say, yeah, I think repairs are probably more likely to happen because um, I feel like they're not going to treat it as, as, as well as maybe um, an older person would. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, you would say that too, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, totally. All right. Um, I mean, that's pretty much it for student housing. It's, it's kind of just cut and dry. It's just students, um, obviously, are going to get a place near um, a, a college. Um, and yeah, um, and then you can get typical financing. Um, the thing with student housing, though, is you're likely going to be doing, uh, you're either going to be buying a single family house, which you're going to need 15%, or a multifamily for 25% down. Um, the only other way around that in the chances you want to actually live in student housing, um, this is a great play if you're still in school and you want to buy a house while you're in school, rent it out to your friends while you're finishing up school, and then you have a rental when you move on. Um, yeah. This is not something I would do at this point, so it really depends on on where you're at. I think house hacking student housing is a super cool start for people interested in real estate and those people still going to school. Um, otherwise, I think the the leverage loss that you get from going into student housing combined with the extra work, if I'm going to be doing all that extra work to deal with students um, and have to deal with their parents, I'm just going to be running an Airbnb. It's Student housing is probably double the work of a traditional long-term rental and Airbnb is probably five times the work. So if student housing is only getting me like a quarter premium, I'm getting the double premium and doing the 5X work there's all day. Uh, and that's just something to consider. Every market's a little different. Totally. Yeah, for sure. Um, I myself probably wouldn't do a, a student rental, um, but it definitely is a strategy that, that people do. Um, people make pretty good money on it. And if that's your thing, you know, run with it. If you're making money, good for you. Yeah. Yeah, that works. Makes a lot of sense. Um, let's get into ground up construction because I'm sure a lot of people out there, everyone dreams of being a developer, seeing these guys out there building houses, building building apartments, getting out there in that next level. Um, you want to dive in? Sure. Yeah. Um, actually, I have a few questions for you first um, with sort of ground up construction. So typically, um, in terms of loans, do you typically need, um, are you typically able to get a loan for the land or do you first have to put the cash out yourself to buy that? Yeah, it's a really good question. So most lenders require that you buy the land in cash. And depending on what market you're in, a cash purchase can be extremely expensive. For example, um, maybe in just like a regular old town, buying land is like 20, 30K. Still a lot of cash, um, but you can probably finance most of the construction. Whereas let's say you're buying at the Jersey Shore, 
um, or any shore point, if you're if you're buying beachfront property, you might be paying one, two, three, five million dollars just for the land. And the cost to build these houses is the same. So whether you're you're building a three thousand square foot house on beachfront or you're building a three thousand square foot house in the suburbs somewhere, if you're paying thirty thousand for land in one place and building a three hundred thousand dollar house, but you're paying two million dollars another and building a three hundred thousand dollar house, those are very very different investments. And needing thirty thousand cash than financing is very different than two million cash and financing three hundred thousand. So how you're making this play is going to be very different. Now, there are new lenders out there who are getting into the game and are going to do 35% of the, the land purchase uh, or 65% rather. So you put 35% down um, and they'll do that up until 90% of the construction cost. So it's a new term for some people out there. It's called LTC, loan to cost. A lot of lenders will base these construction loans based off the LTC. What does the land and the construction costs will loan you 90% of that money. So depending on how much your land was versus how much your construction is, you might be able to get a pretty good finance deal there. Um, and they'll do a, a minimum of 35% of land. So you can get in for 35% of land if all those numbers add up right. And now the really important key is the ARV. So you're going to buy land and you're going to build on it. Um, right now, I have a place where the land costs 100000 the construction costs 240000 uh, and after it's done, it should be worth about 440,000, 100,000 Delta. The thing is the land can be purchased 35 K down and the total cost of the land and the construction is about 340. So 90% of that is almost 90% loan to cost means really, I just had to pay 35 K for the land, which is about where it was at. So a lot of that can be leveraged. Um, I missed this loan type. I didn't know it when I purchased land, so I paid all cash for it. But for those looking to get into ground up construction, it's really cool how you can leverage kind of the different loan to cost ratios there. Totally. Yeah. And I would say this is definitely a good strategy for somebody um, who is in the game for a little bit, because because typically uh, a lender is not going to want to loan to you um, on a ground up construction when you don't have any experience, right? That's the big issue. It's sort of like with the, the Burr method, no lender is going to want to renovate um, or let you do a renovation project and put in that scope of work if you haven't done it before, the chicken before the egg thing. So you can't build a ground up construction unless you've already built a ground up construction, which means you need to partner with someone who already has one. For me, I'm partnered with a GC who does a lot of different work in Philadelphia. Um, so I'm on title, which means after this project, I'll be able to go out there and do my own projects from there. Do I intend on doing that? Maybe not necessarily. Um, I like having the idea of having a general contractor doing the build and being partnered on the project and working on it. But down the road, maybe I will get into it. I'm going to watch a lot of the things that he's doing, how he's going through the process. And that is something I could be trying at some point. Yeah, it's super nice, especially if you have somebody close to you um, that you maybe work with. That, that does these things all the time and you can, you know, just hit them up and be like, Hey, um, I'm interested in doing this. Would you maybe want to partner on something with me? And then that not only lowers your risk because you're working with somebody who already knows what they're doing. They've done this stuff before, but it also lowers your, your cost entry because you're, you're maybe splitting it with them. Um, and just the knowledge you learn from it is, is probably just unmatched to anything else. Yeah. I'm getting all the experience for half the price. That's, that's the way to look right. at it. And that's, that's true for any kind of mentorship or partnership play. Uh, in any strategy in real estate, if there's something you're not familiar with and you can partner with someone who's much more familiar with it, 
try to bring something to the table that they don't have. That can be cash. You can bring extra cash than they brought. Um, you can bring equal cash. Maybe they need to fill out the deal. Maybe there's a lot of legwork that you can do. Um, for me, I'm attractive as an investment partner because I understand short-term rentals really well. And I actually designed all the plans for the, the ground up construction, specifically tailored to short-term rentals. So I have the vision. I know it's going to create the most revenue. He brings it to life. And then from there, we split all the profits from the short-term rental. It's a win-win for everybody. I brought half the cash, so did he. So it's it's not like we we did a tug of war on that piece. And that that could happen for anything. Maybe you want to invest in student rentals, um, but you're, it's your first rental. You're kind of afraid. You want to partner with a, a more avid investor who doesn't want to buy in the rental market, but knowing that you're going there, he knows that you'll be able to fill it with tenants and it's a good entry point for them into that market um, with you going to school there. So you have a lot of different ways to play all types of different deals. And I think it's important to try to be crafty. Don't try to be one of those people who say, I'm not going to give you any money, but I'll do all the work. Most investors who have experience don't care. Um, they don't want the new investor to come in. Most, A lot of people will want to help you out, but if you're not bringing any money to the table, there's no skin in the game and they're not going to want to deal with you. So try to try to offer them your best. Um, there's nothing wrong with offering a little bit of extra work, but be, be realistic about what you're bringing to the table. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems to me um, pretty much most deals are, are typically that, that 50, 50 cash. Um, and then maybe one person does more, more work. Um, but is that what you would say? Typically it's, it's like a 50, 50 deal. If, if you're both kind of partnering on it. It's either a 50-50 deal with how you're partnering on it or someone's bringing more cash than the other person. A lot of times there, there are investors who will put down 75 to even 100% of the cash, but then the other person is doing literally everything. Um, and they're still like the return they're getting at the end of the day, let's say they put in 100% of the cash and they keep 70% of the property or the cash flow or equity. Um, maybe that 70% return is enough for it to be completely passive for them. And that's the right amount to get the person doing all the split equity to, to do the project without having to leverage their own cash. Yeah, totally. Um, real quick, some of the big benefits of ground up, I would say would be higher profit potential. Um, you're getting brand new stuff, um, tons of experience. Um, anything else to touch on there? Yeah, I think it's, it's one of the few investment plays that you get a lot more room to leverage your creativity um everyone wants to build the bigger better newer wheel and a lot of times just not creating the wheel works but i think in development you can really get rewarded for being creative and doing something a little different it could also backfire totally but there's also that room to let let yourself flow and, and get into things and, and create something that people will pay a, a premium for the only other investment option i know that really has that same leverage is airbnb with the interior design aspect um, and if you can combine those two things, get develop something that's specific for short-term rentals and then have the interior design complement it, oh, you're you're in business. Yeah, it's really a point you had there. Um, I guess you can really just play around and, and do whatever your heart desires for for these these sort of grind up constructions. Um, you know, with a little bit of of kind of just market research to figure out what people sort of like in an area and you can kind of put your own twist on it and make it something um, maybe super cool that people will pay a premium for. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Let's shift to the Burr method, Mike. Let's run through that one and then we can call it. Um, do you, you know do you know how the financing works there, Mike? I'm going to put you on the spot. Cool. Financing. Um, I would say since you're not living in it, you can't do an FHA. So I'd say it's probably a higher, let's say, 15 or 
sometimes um, a lot of people can can go that route and then just get a renovation loan for the rest. But it is very possible with the Burr method to do zero percent. Oh. And what you're able to do is if you have the right experience, there's lenders who will, who will lend the entire thing. You just put a deposit in, um, which helps cover some of the closing costs. But really, at the end of the day, if you have the right um, experience and track record, there are people who give you 100% of the money because the numbers just have to add up right. If you're buying a property for 100, you're putting 50K into it, and it's worth 200. Those are the kind of numbers a lender is going to look for. They're going to want to see you hit a certain threshold of what the ARV is going to be compared to what your costs are to get everything done. And as long as that ratio is right, people give you 100% of the money. You just have to take those boxes. And how they verify that is they send someone out for an appraisal to tell you what it's going to be worth after they see your scope of work. They make sure that the renovations you're going to do are actually going to cost as much as you say, and the property is going to be worth as much as you say it's going to be worth after doing said renovations. Yeah, totally. Um, I didn't. My know. buddy actually just uh, just finished a project where he bought it for forty k, put eighteen k into it, um, cash, and what he said was a whole lot of sweat equity. So he did a lot of those renovations himself to save a lot of money, but he just got the appraisal back at one fifty five. So fifty eight all in, one fifty five appraisal for the refi. He's going to be pulling out a whole lot of cash and able to, to duplicate that process over and over from there. And that's what makes Burr such an attractive strategy. Uh, you can get in for no cash using hard money. You just got to find the right deal. And then once you're done with the project, you can do it again. If you can set up the right systems, get the right contracting teams, you can do these over and over and it becomes all about finding deals. The issue is everyone wants to do Burr because it's such a good leverage tool and your competition for deals is very difficult. So creating that right deal funnel and doing the, gr the grunt work to get the deals in is gonna be the name of the game. Yeah, totally. Have you ever done a bird yourself? Yes, yeah, so I haven't yet. I have a lot of friends who have, um, more, more so because I found my niche and they're playing with the burr method because they're starting to find that it's becoming theirs and they don't know short-term rentals as well. Uh, but I've seen it executed successfully several times. A, a really key play to make is to try to get on as many wholesalers lists as you can, try to get uh, friendly with as many agents as you can. Um, the more people who are putting deals in front of you, the better chance is that you're going to find something good. And if people are know you're going to buy things, they're going to bring you more and more deals because they're trying to get their wholesaler fee or their agent fee, or whatever it might be. If they have a good deal, just be good to them, complete the deal, do the next one. It's going to be a lot easier to scale, but you kind of have to earn your stripes in uh, the bird game. Yeah, totally. Um, in terms of finding these deals, would you say uh, Zillow is an option or is this pretty much strictly like off-market deals you'd have to find to, to get sort of uh, a deal that works with, with the bird method? That's a big fallacy in this industry is that you need to, to be off-market all the time. Certainly, there are a ton of off-market plays that are going to work, and you're going to have luck with that, but it's totally possible to find Burr plays and flip plays on the MLS. Yeah, good to know. Good to know. Yeah, a lot of people, I, I also think that that's pretty true. A lot of people think that off-market is the only way to go, and it's really not. It's just honestly just looking and doing more and more searching, spending more time searching um, the MLS if you're an agent or just Zillow, um, Redfin, all, all those things. Um, if if you want to find the more you know what you're doing and the more time you spend in a market the better chance it is that you're going to find a deal if you know the market like the back of your hand and let's say 
Um, Joe Schmo just listed his mom's house for her because she didn't want to get a more competent agent. And unfortunately for him and his mother, he this is the only house he's going to sell this year. He doesn't know the market that well. He underprices it or he overpriced it and it sat for too long. And now it's just been dropping like crazy. You might be able to swoop in and get a really good deal quickly on that because the agent is inexperienced. Then you can create value from there with your burr flip strategy. Oh, yeah. If you're on top of the market and you're seeing pretty much everything that comes in the market and you're really familiar, you know almost right away if something is, is incorrectly priced, if it's, if it's priced lower than it should be. And you can jump on that right away and get tons of value just, just off the purchase alone. A lot of people say that the money is made in the purchase, not in the, the anything else. Yeah, totally. And that can happen. Um, I see it happen all the time. Yeah. Um, that's pretty much all I got for that. Um, what is your, let's, let's go. What are your, what are your top three favorite? Um, what are your top three favorites out of, out of everything you talked about in this episode? Sure. So obviously getting into short-term rentals is, is a big key for me to our niche, but specifically I like the idea of doing single family houses uh, and house hacking, kind of a combination of those two strategies are, are two of my favorite. You should always be house hacking every year. Um, it's the fastest track to building wealth and using that leverage for yourself. The other thing is with short-term rentals, you can get second home vacation loans at 10% down. So you can do a house hack simultaneously to a 10% down second home. Uh, and just right there, you're averaging seven and a half percent down payment as leverage. And you got two houses. You rinse and repeat and do it the next year. Uh, and you're off to a really good start. From there, I do like the idea because those are so passive once you get them set up. I really like the idea of having a project to work on, something that you can use your creativity. So approaching a, a burr or ground up to kind of keep you more involved in the space and then just keep looking for more deals in the meantime that you can can play with. So I would say house hacking, uh, ground up slash larger burrs, and then uh, short-term renting are the three plays that I would make time and time again. And I would definitely say the same. Um, I think those are the three best, especially when you're, you're newer in the game, or even if you're like in the game for a little bit, um, I think those are just strategies you can use all the time and just they're, they're really just timeless. They, they don't really go away. Totally. The opportunities are out there. So I'm glad you, uh, you and I think like on this topic, Mike. <laughs> that's right. Um, well, I mean, that's pretty much in the episode. I think that was a really solid episode, probably our longest episode um, to date. I, I think so. Uh, I think just about, um, there's a lot of good information there. Um, we do want to ask you guys that if you did um, like the video, if you learned something, which I, I know you learned something because we had a lot of information on here, that you do leave us a review on wherever you're listening to the podcast. It really helps us out a lot. It makes us know you want to learn and hear more from us. Um, it keeps us motivated to keep making them. Um, uh, let's shout out Instagrams. Um, I am Liz with Mikey. If you want to learn more and see more of what I do there and JD is. At Live Free with JD, we just got, we gave you guys the longest episode yet. There's always something to talk about in real estate. And please, please go out there and take action and do something. I don't want to hear that you listened to the whole episode and it was great. I want to hear that you bought a house. Go get into the game, get started, use some of these methods we gave you today and get after it. That's right. Yeah. Um, and I'm excited for episode 10 next week. We hit double digits. So stay tuned for that, guys. Um, but that's pretty much it from us.
and uh, we will see you later. Live free. All right, guys. Catch you later. Live free. Mike, enjoy the hot tub at your Airbnb. Oh, I will. I will. Catch you guys.